Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 53. So we're leaving off. Uh, last week we looked at um, disciples that were on the road to Emmaus and they'd just come back. They'd seen Jesus and they ran back to Jerusalem and they're all meeting with the disciples together. So we're reading from there. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broad fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, He left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Well, you might have heard the song, uh, this song. I heard it on the radio the other week, and it's stuck in my head ever since. It's called Sorta Dunno Nothing. You heard this song? It's called Sorta Dunno Nothing. Uh, and the whole song is this over-enthusiastic Aussie guy talking to his, uh, his university-aged son, right? Uh, I think that's what it is. Uh, anyway, he asks him a series of questions, and each time he gets this monotone, single-word answer. Okay, so this enthusiastic dad, he says, How have you been? Have you, have you heard this song? How have you been? And the answer comes back, Good. Uh, Where'd you go? No word. Who'd you see? No one. What'd you do? Nothing. Did you have a good time? Yep. Anyway, the chorus goes, the chorus goes, yep, yep, nothing, nothing, sort of, dunno, nowhere good. Okay, and there's this music that goes in the, in the background. Um, and it sort of captures this classic aspect of stereotypical Australian culture, you know, sort of the laid back Aussie bloke, no worries about nothing, happy to sit around and do nothing much chilled out and fairly apathetic about you know, the world around them. It's interesting, though, that this stereotype, uh, it doesn't quite match up with the reality for most Australians. See, while we might kind of enjoy the thought of this kind of stereotype, this, you know, the chilled out Aussie, for many Australians, and I'd hazard a guess that for many people even down here on the chilled out south coast, <laughs> life can be, often be driven more by kind of anxious activity than chilled out apathy. Uh, it seems to be true across society. So uh, one survey of uh, 15,000 young people a couple of years ago revealed 
uh, worrying and significant levels of stress uh, over a whole range of issues, things like body image, uh, school study. The most stressful area, interesting, uh, was worry about coping with stress. So you see how this sort of feeds itself. You get anxious about whether you can cope with your, the stress that comes and which makes you more stressed. You know, sort of, and it can bear out in working hours. Australia has some of the highest percentages of people who work very long hours. Um, even for those among us who are retired, it seems to me that being retired is kind of like having a full-time job but no pay and no holidays. Right? So, is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, those are kind of extremes, right? They're extremes. And perhaps you identify with, to, at least to some extent, with, with these sort of uh, these extremes of uh, what, what seems to be in Aussie culture. You see, we want rest. But our anxieties about life often kind of drive us to this uh, stressed state and being crazy busy. Um, well, today's portrait is, I think... An incredible portrait, uh, today's passage, incredible portrait of Jesus' first appearance to his disciples after being raised from the dead. And it speaks powerfully, I think, into these cultures of chilled out apathy or uh, anxious activity. We meet someone who gives incredible peace and rest and joy. But it's not a rest that leads to apathy. You know, it's not a rest that sort of leads to just sitting back and saying, sort of done or nothing good. In a unique way, the one we meet in this passage is not only the Lord of peace, he is the Lord of a breathtaking global mission. And his people who share in his peace also share in that mission. So that's what we're going to look at today. It's a beautiful picture, I think, of Jesus and what it means to live, for us to live in the light of his resurrection from the dead. Well, uh, as Sarah mentioned, we pick up in verse 36 there, and we are kind of dropping in halfway through a bit of a story. Uh, if you do have your Bibles open, that'll be helpful to, to um, tra- travel through this story as we go through. Uh, we've been reading the last couple of weeks this incredible first uh, parts of, Luke's, uh, of Luke 24. Uh, we saw at the start, uh, we saw this people in shock and grief as the one that they had followed and loved and put their hopes and trusts in, uh, was they had just seen brutally executed just days before, uh, betrayed, led to the cross, and killed. Then we saw a couple of weeks ago, chapter 24, Luke tells us of, uh, uh, up to this point, a couple of groups within this larger group of Jesus followers. First of all, obviously, the women. The women go to the tomb. They find the tomb empty and angels there. We looked at that on Easter Sunday. Last week, as, we, as Sarah mentioned, we looked at the disciples travelling on the road to Emmaus and how they just get transformed when they meet the risen Jesus. <clears throat> and th- those two, those two on the road, uh, they go back to the larger group of disciples uh, and find that one of them has also seen Jesus alive and... Uh, uh, and right at that point, they're talking. They're sort of in this, you know, incredible, amazed discussion about what's happened. Right at that point, in verse thirty-six, we read that Jesus Himself appears among them and says to them, "Peace be with you." And then there's this great moment in verse thirty-seven, then just the very next verse along. That's not really great. It's sort of tragic in a way. Well. 
we'll explore it a little bit. Jesus says, peace be with you. And what effect does it have on them? It has the absolute opposite effect, right? They're terrified. They get terrified. They're startled and frightened because they think they're looking at a ghost, a disembodied kind of spirit. <clears throat> but Jesus isn't finished yet, right? He goes on. Uh, and goes on with this beautiful question, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in... Jesus isn't actually looking for an answer here. He's not actually... He he, it's obvious why they're troubled, right? He's not trying to figure out, Hmm, why are these guys so troubled? He's not actually... He doesn't want an answer. Uh, the man they saw brutally tortured and killed three days earlier suddenly appears right there among them. You know, it's kind of obvious <laughs> why they're a little bit put out by this. Uh, it's obvious why they doubt. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Again, people just don't rise from the dead. No matter, and it doesn't even matter if my close friends over there have told me that they've seen it, when I'm actually faced with the risen Jesus myself, confronted with this reality that just turns my whole world on its head? Of course doubts rise in my mind. See, he doesn't, he's not looking for a literal answer here. It's a rhetorical question. And it's not said to um, make them feel bad about their troubles or their doubts. He's not trying to scold them. Jesus is trying to open their eyes to a new way of seeing the world. You see, while from one perspective, it's totally understandable that they were troubled and in doubt, there is another perspective, a deeper reality, in which their trouble and doubts don't make sense. And Jesus says, let me show you this new reality, this new way of seeing the world. It's me. Look at my hands and feet, he goes on. The scars from the nails are right there. Don't just come and look. Uh, come and you know, give me a pinch. I'm no ghost, I'm flesh and bones. And as we keep reading along, even after this in verse 41, they still don't believe. But this time they've kind of moved a little bit. It's a different kind of disbelief. It's not driven by fear and doubt, but by joy and amazement. It's sort of like the... Yeah, it's, it's just too good to be true. That's, that's the kind of disbelief that's, that, that, that they shift to here. I just can't believe it. But if their trouble and doubt was no reason to not believe, neither is their joy and amazement. See, this, friends, is the one fairy tale that also happens to be a true story. Uh, it might seem too good to be true, but it's not. It is too good and it's true. So to keep ramming home the point, Jesus says to them, have you guys got some fish and chips? You know, not quite, but you know what I'm talking about, right? He says, uh, have you got any food to eat? And right there in front of them, each, you, know, you can picture him. They're all sort of gobsmacked. He's there with his piece of fish. And I always feel a bit awkward if I'm just the only one eating and everyone's looking at me, but Jesus doesn't seem to worry here. He gets his fish. And he starts gobbling it down, and you can see him licking his fingers afterwards, maybe wipe, you know, he, he enjoys the fish. And then in verse 44, he says to this larger group, what the angels had said to the women, uh, what he'd said to the two on the road to Emmaus, 
It's true and it was all part of God's great plan. It was all part of God's great, wonderful plan. It had to happen. Verse 44, what we, uh, yeah, verse 44, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So his death and bearing the punishment for the sin of humanity, of humanity's rebellion against God, his resurrection, defeating death and offering new life and forgiveness to all who would put their faith in him. All of that was part of God's incredible loving plan to restore his creation to himself, to bring back people into right relationship with him, their creator. And so when Jesus says, peace be with you, when he appears and he says peace, it's not just you know, some random saying that he's pulled out of nowhere, or it's also not like, you know how we say, g'day, we don't actually mean it's a good day. You know, like <laughs> we say g'day regardless, or how you going? Uh, we, you know, often we just say there's a greeting, it's not meant to actually be a question. But that's not what Jesus, it's not just pulling out a saying here, right? When he says, peace be with you, Jesus' resurrection and the way that it fulfills God's great plans for, his, for this world, that fills Jesus' words with an incredible and wonderful significance. In all the chaos and trouble and anxiety of this world, there is one who brings peace. Deep Eternal, lasting peace. Peace with God. Peace with each other. A soul at rest. So why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Jesus opens the disciples' minds in verse 45. We read, he opens their minds to understand this from the scriptures and they get it. There is a deeper reality than their troubles and their doubts. The kingdom of the risen Jesus. And it fills them with joy. Now you see that right at the end of our passage when we got there, verses 52 and 53. They're just this scene of wonderful, overflowing joy. These people, they realise, they, they suddenly get it. It's not too good to be true. It's too good and it's true. Jesus really is risen. He really is the Lord of peace and joy. But there is more, friends. <laughs> There's more going on here. You see, when Jesus opens their minds to the scriptures, it wasn't just so that they could see the wonderful peace they had with God and fill them with joy. The great plans of God weren't just about them as individuals, just as individual people. He tells them, you can read along in verse 46, he says, This is what it was written. That's what we learned before. You should all know it by heart. <laughs> The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. 
Now what's going on here? Jesus opens their eyes to this amazing new reality. A reality that filled them with peace and joy. He really is risen. But it didn't lead them, as we said before, it didn't lead them to just kick back and do nothing much at all. Uh, Jesus is the Lord of a global mission. See, it's all part of what had to happen. It's all part of it. The Messiah had to suffer and rise. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. It's all part of God's plans. Not only what Jesus did on the cross, but repentance for the forgiveness of sins being preached to the whole world. It has to happen. But what is this repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Uh, Friends, it seems to me that this idea of repentance is open to a bit of misunderstanding, uh, perhaps in our culture. It's sort of easy to think of the guy holding a sandwich board, saying, telling everyone to repent, or the over-enthusiastic preacher uh, calling people to repent. Or perhaps, uh, perhaps we can get the impression that repentance is basically about trying harder to live a more moral kind of life, right? You know, so just stop doing the wrong thing, start doing the right thing. It's as if Jesus is here saying, try to lead a good life, not do too much bad stuff, and God will forgive you. But that's not at all what's going on here. It's not the Bible's view of repentance, really, at all. Repentance is less about trying, it's more about turning. It's more about turning. God's forgiveness is always... A free gift, freely given. It's not something we earn. That's why it was such good news for these disciples. But as long as we're looking to other things to satisfy us, as long as we're holding our hands out to the idols of our age, sex, money, power, any other idol that we can have, as long as we're, doing, we're, we're, we're putting our faith in other things, we won't receive this gift freely given. So repentance means turning from our false hopes and turning to God to receive what he freely gives us. Recognising that life and forgiveness comes only from him and that he freely offers them to us. And Jesus says this call to repent, this call to turn from putting our faith in other things, turning to God to receive his kindness and goodness and forgiveness. Turn to the God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Jesus says that this is all part of God's great, wonderful mission, his great plan. It will be preached in Jesus' name. And it's worth us just just pausing a minute here, because this is so important, friends. Jesus is the Lord of a global mission. This mission is first and foremost God's mission that he is carrying out. See what, what's going on here? This is all part of what had to happen. It is God's mission that he is carrying out. The preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to the whole world is just as much a part of God's plan as the Messiah suffering and rising again. It has to happen. And the disciples are 
kind of swept up in what God is doing. They are called to join him in what he's doing in the world. In verse 48, you read it there, you are witnesses of these things. You're the ones I will use to go forward with my plan that I am, I am doing. I will proclaim, I will use you to proclaim this forgiveness and to call the world to repent, to turn to me. They're called into God's mission. They're not only called into it, they're empowered for it. You see that if you read on verse 49, Jesus promises to send what his father had promised, the Holy Spirit, God's own power and presence within us to help us in this great mission. And that's why, I know there's a lot in there, isn't there? But that's why these disciples could hold on to both peace and joy and an incredible global mission. Because they knew from first to last that this is God's mission. It's what he is doing in the world. Saving people through his wonderful gospel as they turn to put their trust in him. Well, that's the, uh, that's the end of Luke's gospel. We've come sort of to the end, the account of, his account of Jesus' death and resurrection, but it's not the end of the story, is it? I mean, uh, Luke, uh, Luke's gospel finishes here, but uh, if you've read on to read the book of Acts, you'll know that Luke sort of continues. This is just partway through. And Acts, Luke's next sort of book, uh, Luke's next book in the Bible, Acts, records the incredible explosion of this mission of God. The incredible explosion of God's mission across the world. Acts 1 verse 8, uh, Jesus, before he returns to his father, it's sort of a, it's a repeat of uh, Luke 24. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that's just what happens all the way through Acts. God's spirit comes on these disciples, fills them, and they preach the gospel. They become witnesses of what God has done in Jesus. They call people to repent, to turn from their sin, to turn to God, to put their trust in him, to receive his free gift. And it wasn't easy for them, if you know anything of the story of Acts, This wasn't an easy thing. These guys suffered immensely. But they didn't lose their peace and their joy. They sung songs while they were chained up in prison. Now what kind of person does that? Who could sing, you know, chained up in prison? It's the person who has met the risen Jesus. Who has met the Lord of peace and the Lord of a global mission. By the end of Acts, they're still going at it, right? And there's no end in sight. This great global mission continues on. And it has continued on throughout the centuries, all the way to Australia, even all the way down to Victor Harbour and Port Elliot, Goolwa, the whole south coast. Trinity South Coast, friends, Trinity South Coast exists because of this mission. Because of this mission of God. We are a people who, like the first disciples, have been swept up in what God is doing in his world. We are witnesses of the great things God has done in the Lord Jesus. The great things that he has done in our lives. We are proclaimers of forgiveness and peace and repentance and joy.
Friends, I just wanted to finish on three quick thoughts to sort of uh, bring together some of these things, to think through what it means for us. The, the, we've seen, sort of journeyed through for those first disciples, how what an incredible transformation it made for them. What does it mean for us? Well, as uh, Christian people, those of us here who are Christians, who do call Jesus our King and our Saviour, it seems to me that it's possible to be a Christian and to be on mission, but to just lose our joy and our peace. I don't know if that resonates with you. It certainly does for me. Especially starting a new church. Especially then, I think, we can feel like everything is up to us and we can be driven more by anxious activity than peace and joy. Do you notice what, uh, in Luke 24, what the disciples did once Jesus gave them this breath, you know, it's a breathtaking thing that Jesus gave them to do, right? You are my witnesses to spread this message across the whole world. What did the disciples do after that? I'll tell you what they did. They rolled their sleeves up, formed a committee and started a plan for how they were going to win the world for Jesus. Oh, actually, no, they didn't. Sorry. Uh, if you're reading, let's, let's turn back to Luke 24. They worshipped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they waited in the temple continually, praising God, waiting for his promised Holy Spirit. See, they knew it was Jesus' mission. They knew it was his mission. That he would equip them, he would empower them for it. And their response was to rejoice in him, to praise and worship him, to wait for him. And that should be ours too, friends. The risen Jesus brings peace, it is his mission. So, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. But secondly, it seems to me that it's equally as possible for Christians to take hold of peace and joy, the peace and joy that comes from knowing Jesus. But uh, this is sort of the opposite extreme, to kind of keep it to ourselves. Uh, to treat it as if it weren't meant for the whole world, right? This precious gift. We can become chilled out and apathetic towards a world that is dying and in rebellion against God. The disciples weren't anxiously active, okay? They weren't anxiously active. But once the Holy Spirit came on them, they set the world on fire. They were unstoppable, or God was unstoppable through them. They did plan, they even formed committees, but not out of a kind of nervous self-reliance, not because they knew, uh, not, not because of anything like that, but because they knew, they knew that they had been entrusted with the hope of the world, that they were witnesses to Jesus, the risen King, who was on a great mission to bring life and healing to this world. They were swept up in his mission and they put everything they could into it. So perhaps um, in your Christian life you're anxiously active. Uh, 
Jesus brings you peace. But perhaps you've fallen into a kind of chilled out apathy in your Christian life. Jesus gives you an incredible global mission to be a part of. But perhaps, lastly, maybe you don't really know either of these. You you don't have the kind of peace that Jesus offers or this great purpose that he gives his people. And friends, if that's you, Jesus calls you to repent for the forgiveness of your sins. If Jesus is right, your lack of peace and joy and purpose is because you're placing your trust in created things rather than the Creator. Because you're looking for meaning and significance in people or things or yourself, in your work or your family or your bank balance, you're you're putting good things in the place of God. Looking to them to satisfy you when only God can do that. And Jesus calls you to turn from those things and to turn to him as your Lord. He is the Lord of peace and he will give you the peace you crave. And he's the Lord of a global mission that can give you a great eternal purpose. And he can do that right here and right now today. Let's pray.